Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and we had all of Spicy October, and now it's time for some meat and potatoes we're going to get into here in November. And I'm super excited to be joined by Steve Daynard. He's a CKC judge. He is a breeder of, if I remember correctly, English Springer Spaniels. Yes, Steve? Right, right. Yep, exactly. Excellent. And we are going to talk about the art and science of dog show judging. And Steve and I got in a conversation at a dog show that we were both judging a couple months ago, and it was just so fascinating. Some of his ideas, I'm like, you've got to come and we're going to talk about this. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet. This year, give your buyers the gift of peace of mind with a special go-home day offer from Trupanion. This offer provides puppies with immediate coverage, so they're protected should they get into mischief in their new homes. Trupanion covers pets against unexpected accidents and illnesses with no payout limits, helping ease the financial burden when a pet gets sick or injured. Even better, Trupanion is able to pay the veterinarian directly at the time of checkout, which means less out-of-pocket for your buyers. You can get this special offer for your buyers as part of the Breeder Support Program. It's completely free to join and available for breeders in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. Getting started is quick and easy. Just follow the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com to get started. Welcome, Steve. I'm super excited we got this together. Well, thanks for having me, Laura. And you know, it's interesting too. I mean, you know, there is really a fair amount of controversy, obviously, around the judging process. I mean, we're on social media. We kind of see what the prevailing winds and thought processes are for not only the judging community, but also exhibitors and all that stuff. So, and this isn't new. This is something that's been in the forefront for as long as I've been in dogs, you know, late 70s. Yep. There's always been some version of this going. So I just feel there's got to be a better way, you know? I think it's amazing. So give us what we like to call the 411. Tell us about your background a little bit. Got it, got it, got it. So I actually got involved with English Springer Spaniels in 1977 with my parents, you know, my aunt and uncle who had relocated back to Toronto. Originally went to dog shows in the 1970s and we had an English Springer Spaniel. They're like, oh, well, you have a purebred dog, you got to get a bitch, you got to go to a dog show. I'm like, sure. So we literally dove in and it was probably the best decision, you know, that was ever made from a family perspective. And I continued on with the sport and started handling, working for handlers when I was a teen. And, you know, my first job was the first career that I really had when I retired about 10 years ago. I was there for 30 years. Apart from that, I was always doing the dog thing. So it's been a part of my life. It really doesn't define who I am, but it certainly complements my life experience and I wouldn't trade it for anything. So did a lot of breeding, handling, and uh, my parents also brought English Spaniels. And 
And we've had a lot of success in the breed. Top statuses, top dog in Canada, all that other great stuff. And won at U.S. Nationals over the years and really love that part of who I am. And then, you know, evolved into judging, you know, got it kind of like my mid to late 30s and thought, oh, my body's just not responding the same way <laughs> that it should. I decided and, that at 50, Steve, so I'm saying yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, what happened was I was working full time in Toronto and, you know, we had three young children at home and I got sick and I thought, oh my God, there's got to be a better way. I was showing every weekend. It's just a really hard lifestyle. But I found after about 25 years in the sport that it was empty for it to end like that, you know? And so somebody said, well, why don't you judge? And I thought, oh, well, that's really good. So I looked into it and the best thing I did to evolve into the sport even more. And I absolutely love it. So I'm an Albury judge with the Canadian Kennel Club. I've been judging for about maybe 17 or 18 years now. I've been all breed for at least six or seven years. And that has given me a lot of great opportunities to meet great people like yourself, you know, at American Dog Shows, as well as being able to travel all over the world. And, you know, I don't want people to think that traveling is the end goal here. Because honestly, you know, Laura, traveling sure is a more glamorous <laughs> a concept than what it really actually is, okay? But having said that, what I love about that opportunity is be able to see dogs from other countries and meet people because there are no borders, there are no boundaries. You know, the dog community is worldwide and there's a lot of commonality here. And that's what I really love about that. And of course, when you travel to other countries outside of North America in particular, they're really hyped up on their culture and want to show you around. So what a great cultural thing as well to see things you might not necessarily have had exposure to so yeah well i got to go to south korea i would never love it to south korea i, I didn't love it dogs right so i think that what you say is really important that it's about the dogs but it is an opportunity that enriches our lives on multiple levels how's that well laura the reason why i wanted to clarify that is, is that i think that there is a perception and maybe true for some people that judges only get into judging later in their lives because it's an opportunity to travel. So I just want to clarify that in my perspective, traveling the concept is wonderful. Oh, I'm going to Australia. Yeah. How long is that flight? And you're just a bag of bones by the time you get there. Now it's wonderful when you are there, don't get me wrong, but I just want to clarify that, that, that I don't think that that really is the motivation. I think it's a really cool byproduct. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. what I would say. Yeah. It is a nice side benefit to getting sure. to see people and see dogs and expand what I agree. It is 100% a global perspective. Well, it's also interesting to see the style variances within breeds. Okay. And again, you know, for the most part, a lot of the standards are very, very similar. You can tell what a wine runner looks like or whatever. Okay. You can recognize that no matter where you go in the world. But you do see style variances that are indicative to the country that might not necessarily be outlined or that different in the breed standard. And again, not to poo-poo on Australia, but the first time I went there, I was really shocked 
to see that they're really, for the most part, into big side gate. They're really into dogs covering a lot of ground. And that's a wonderful thing as long as it's effective and efficient and long and low and balance and all that other great stuff, right? But, you know, and just the way that they showed their dogs was kind of different than what I'd been exposed to. Not polar opposite, but there was a noticeable difference for me. I think it's kind of cool now it is what it is. You know, you need to be able to control your ring. So you do get differences not only in styles, but also the way with which those dogs are exhibited that create a different picture or outline for the judge. A hundred percent. And I think your breed is actually one that's a really good example. Because, you know, the Springer Spaniel in this country, the English Springer Spaniel in this country has become somewhat stylized in the, you know, freckling painted by God, right? It's going to have the perfect glaze and the perfect, yeah, and yeah. my understanding of the springers in, say, Australia or in other parts of the world, they're not as focused on that particular thing and maybe have focused on some other details. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, like structure. So it's interesting. So whenever I go to non-North American shows, especially, you know, on the other side of the world, what I get the perception of is is that I'm going to talk specifically about an experience I had in Australia a few years ago. And what happened was had a lovely entry, 25-ish springers and most of them were Australian bred. And what happened was, is, is that there was maybe a handful, five, six, typically North American bred dogs. And what happened was, is that as you're in there and you're judging, and to me, markings are irrelevant. In my breed, markings are irrelevant. I don't care. I actually prefer no blaze on the face. I think it adds to the expression more. I just look beyond markings. I'm really good at that. I'm a big proponent for outlines. So standing back and looking at proportions and all that stuff, you know, regardless of markings. So what happened was, is during the day when the North American exhibits came in, I look at them, they don't have the ideal silhouette. And these dogs in particular structurally were not as sound. Shoulders were higher placed. There was more going on than just the fact they didn't have any ticking and maybe they had more hair than the other exhibits. It was completely irrelevant to me. Everything is about structure. Everything is about movement. And obviously, you're going to have the icing on the cake. But again, when you're looking beyond the freckling part, the heads were fantastic. They had beautiful depth and chiseling and the proper shape, eye and color. So much going for it. I ended up putting a bitch up and I found the whole same family of Australian bred, more typical UK style of dogs. I didn't have a problem with it. I really think that some of the exhibitors who thought I would look more for that style of North American Springer were kind of surprised. I didn't have an issue with it. Okay. I understand how that perception arises. I also am a very strong prepotent that maybe we may stylize Springers more here in North America. We may grow more hair. It doesn't mean that more hair is the proper hair. It's not the right texture. You can always cut back on length to be more functional. And those issues that we're seeing, the standards for English Springer Spaniels don't really vary all over the world. The size, the proportions are essentially the same. Things where we need to get better on, for the most part, is anatomical issues. And that has nothing to do with ticking. Steve, that's a great segue to what I think is our primary topic, the challenges in the current judging processes. So how do we help judges move into a place of thinking more about the structure and less about the paint job? Some of the biggest challenges for judging really is, are judges, do they have that breed-specific knowledge 
And are we consistent in its application? And then that arises a whole other dynamic around ethical concerns. You know, are there conflict of interest? Are we judging, you know, fairly and equitable and being consistent enough so that people that are watching and particular breeders can follow and they can say, this person really knows my breed. And, you know, the Canadian Canonical System, I hear a lot of scrutiny from other non-Canadian judges about we get there too quickly. And that maybe, you know, in your country, you know, it takes it takes longer to get there. So let's agree that maybe somewhere in the middle might be more ideal. Systems, you know, for the most part, organizing bodies, et cetera, do the best they can given the current environment, et cetera, et cetera, to come up with a fair and equitable process, okay? They don't always get it right. And many times changes just are so laborious. It takes so long. And really, what is the right fit? So I understand those challenges. So I think we need to work within the constraints of what we're handed with hopefully trying to make improvements along the way. So again, some of those challenges are making sure that we have that brief specific knowledge that we're not missing the hallmark characteristics of a breed and just going for a more of a generic exhibit. I'll never forget this. Early on in the dog process, you know, going to work one day, this mutt had side gate for days on the sidewalk, and I went, oh my God, look at that dog move. I'm like, wait a minute, all of this is a mutt with really good legs. It doesn't make it a good English Springer Spaniel. Do you know what I mean? The same thing I remember, Mrs. Clark, Ann Rudders Clark, right. saying that you can find a sound dog at the pound. Right, right. What makes our breeds their breeds. And this was really hard for me. I come from a background like you, sporting dogs, specifically hunting dogs. So for me, locomotion, movement's really important. And so the first time I heard that or read that, it kind of jarred me a little bit. Yeah. Like that was a hard thing for me to, to take in. So continuing on with that, what I really like about, you know, her thought process as well was it's okay, get in the ring. Find the ones that standing there are the truest, most typiest dogs for the breed. And then from there, choose the ones that are anatomically, you know, soundest, et cetera, et cetera, and functionally better legs, whatever it looks like, based on what the breed standard calls for. I really like that approach, okay, because what that does is it prioritizes the fact that the type, I think that as long as a Springer, and we're talking about Springer specifically, oh, barking dog in the background, if a Springer looks like a Springer, it has type. It looks like the breed should look like. You can recognize it for what it is. That's why I use the word style a lot. I think within a breed, we get stylized variances. And don't misinterpret style to be fancy or extreme. Or I'm not talking about that at all. I'm just saying that we have these style variances within a type of dog that's specific to a breed. So it's our job to be able to find, you know, the best fit for that based on what the standard calls for. And, you know, it's interesting, but ethical concerns not only happen from a judging perspective, but there are also other concerns that happen with regards to exhibitors and people who are just showing dogs and handlers. And, you know, there's this whole bally wick. So it's everyone's responsibility, not just the judges like we were talking about briefly before we started the conversation. Well, and I think too, Steve, when we think about... I mean, we can jump to the ethics piece. It applies actually to all the other pieces. So challenges in the judging process, that's one thing, you know, the roles of the judges and what our job is at the center of all of that for everyone is ethics. So the judge, I don't judge, judge people who go on drugs with me. Obviously that's the rules, but I also don't judge people who don't necessarily co-own dogs with me, but are too closely associated with me. Like, you can't come in my ring. Sorry, it's just a law. 
Well, I've always been a really big proponent to, if you have to ask yourself, is there a rule against that? You know, really what's happening is your moral guideline, your compass is probably kicking in saying, huh, should I be doing that? And I think you've already answered your question. If you have to question yourself like that, whether there's a rule and regulation specifically forbidding that is irrelevant. You've already answered your question. It shouldn't happen. No, I think you're absolutely right. And again, I have rules about who can and can't show to me that have nothing to do with what's in the AKC rule book. Right. And particularly as someone myself that was a handler, I know everybody. I'm friends with everyone. And so sure. finding a way to sort of say, okay, just because I know you, you can still show me dogs. This one person over here is going to show any dogs I can't show because I'm not showing anymore. Even my own dogs. I really don't show right. them. Right. Right. So I had to have a handler friend who could stay my handler. You can't come in my ring. But if I said all my handler friends can't come in my ring, I wouldn't have any dogs. For sure, for sure. (laughs) Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, crew. I hear from folks pretty much daily asking for a specific topic or for a series of podcasts on a topic. So... Ask and you shall receive. (laughs) I've done all the hard work. I've sorted, searched, and compiled eight different albums from the archives on our most popular topics. And when I say there's a podcast for that, I ain't just a woofin. Getting yours today is super simple. Just jump on puredogtalk.com backslash store and click the PDT Albums image. And when you're in there, you're going to find a collection of veterinary voices. You're going to find a collection for breeding and whelping hands-on. You'll find Pure Dog Talk University on dog breeding. Love the breeds. Up your game. Owner handlers, the interviews, events and sports. There is so much there. And once you're in those links, you'll be able to read the details of the topic. For a special introductory price of a buck ninety-nine, you get a link to dozens, up to more than a hundred episodes on these specific topics. And while you're there, if you or a friend or family member are just getting started, even just starting a search for your first well-bred purebred dog, you can also check out Auntie Laura's Beginner's Guide to Show Dogs at puredogtalk.com backslash book to get the foundational Pure Dog Talk episodes with bonus tracks. So hop on it, y'all. These special prices will not last. I think you really raise an interesting point, you know, and it kind of falls into this whole political bucket. We were raised in the sport. We spent decades in the sport. We know a lot of people. So now because we've chosen to change hats to now become judges, all of those relationships and those hotels we shared and vehicles we travel in, all that doesn't go away. That doesn't go away. 
No. You know? So what's interesting to me is that when people don't win or whatever, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, of course, I knew Laura was going to win. They traveled the dog shows together 15 years ago, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I hear stuff like I'm just like, oh, my God, like, I don't think that's really the case. Because as a judge, if you are using that as your litmus test for who you're going to award on a day, people know history. Especially people like you and I have been around for a long time. I we know all the, the basis of that. Married. <laughs> exactly. So you're really putting yourself out there in a negative light if that is your guiding principle as far as judging is concerned. So it really irks me when people say things like, oh, well, that's a political win. And many times maybe it is. But I think. I'm not going to say it doesn't happen, Steve. I'm like you 100% are for sure. not Pollyanna enough to say it never happens. I mean, 100% for sure. But well, my interpretation is, is that when that's said as the reason to justify a win, my gut goes to, well, have you really evaluated everything? Did you fairly look at the dogs that were in competition? And many times I'm like, I don't think you really did that. I think that the political excuse was the easy excuse for you to justify that in your mind and poo-poo the credibility of the ethical issue around the judging process. And it's interesting, you know, I'm going to really dive into this. So you didn't want controversial October. Today's the 28th, okay? So I think okay, you're so with that let's theme. Okay? Bring- well, so what's interesting to me is, is that I will see people come out on some of the forums, your judge, et cetera, et cetera. And one just happened a little while ago having to do with a Canadian judge and a comment. And what happened, I observed was that many, and this is a long list of comments, judges who are on committees and kennel clubs were asking this, the author of the post to DM them privately so they could find out who the judge was so they could not hire them for future shows. And I thought, this is public shaming. And what I wanted to say was my gut said to me about to the author, who I don't know, don't know what breed they have. It's irrelevant. What I wanted to say was I wanted to say, well, geez, what did the judge say when you had a collect conversation with them afterwards? And you know that probably didn't, didn't happen. Have a conversation. Oh. It didn't happen. And it's interesting, you know. There's another gentleman who I've just recently had a chance to connect with, and he does a bit of handling, but does some really great breeding as well down in the U.S. market. And he was commenting about the temperaments of a breed that's near and dear to his heart. And what happened was, is again, I'm going to paraphrase here, but the general gist was that he's really shocked at how overall temperaments of the breed have changed, and exhibitors are condoning the fact that, well, it was a COVID dog or whatever all that looked like. When really his observation was, this breed is not supposed to be like that. They're not supposed to be timid. They're a working breed. They're supposed to stand their ground. They have lots of heart. They're unmovable. And so I said, well, geez, what did they say when you had a conversation with them after judging? And he came back and said, well, I didn't do that. And I thought, well, if you didn't do that, and you have such a strong impression over the way the breed should be, don't you think that we collectively have a responsibility as a community, whether you're a handler, you're an exhibitor, you're a dog owner, you're a judge, you're whatever, if you have that strong of an opinion, as opposed to just putting it out there to see what sticks, because we all know that all the negative conjecture is what spurs on these conversations, where is the solution in that? 
how are we actually trying to embrace people to be able to say, you might want to consider this from a different perspective. Now, if you give it to the school try, Laura, and it doesn't stick and it doesn't fall, at least you know you've given it your best shot. You've tried to educate somebody into a different position of thought process to hopefully change their perspective, ideally for the better, and hopefully improve their position with regards to what they expect out of exhibiting their dog. Here's a perfect example. You and I can talk about this. I just judged my national specialty show. Yes. We're yes. national specialty show. It was wonderful. And I saw my name taken in vain in one of those godforsaken groups that I just cannot stand. Oh, and crap. I thought I put that anonymously. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the comments on the thread was that I had put up field dogs. And that was more than I could take. And I had to make a social media post about it. Right, and right. in my brain... Been there, been there, done that. Yep. In my breed specifically, there is no difference in type. There is the standard. Yeah. And field dogs and show dogs are not a thing. There is a German right. breeder standard. Right. And the standard says that the dog must have correct coat to be of correct type. Period. Any conversation <laughs> might drop done. And so if... A person's complaint in this instance with my judging is that I put up dogs with correct coat and that makes them field dogs. Right. So the issue there is, is that that individual's interpretation of what correct coat is. So let's kind of segue into the next part of this. Like I know I gave you a little bit of a innovative strategies to improve the overall that's, fairness. I mean, you know, what, that's what I want to get to, you know, kind of one thought on that is, so I judged in Ireland a couple of years ago, oh, it was last year, and there's a gentleman from Belgium who actually has all the results on tablet. So when you're in the ring, your ring stewards are actually nice. engaging technology into yes. the judging process. And results are posted immediately. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. It's slick. It's seamless. It's really cool. And I always take my tablet, and I've got like four different country breed standards for all breeds on my tablet. I always, you know, read to them, go to refer to them, et cetera. Even so much that if I'm judging and something tweaks me as being different, I'll go to my table, I'll pull it up, I'll take the time. I mean, I want to do the right thing. I think it's better to do that at the time and clarify you're making the right choice than just all of a sudden point. And then afterwards, when you're back to the hotel room, take a look and say, oh, crap, I got that wrong. You know what I mean? You're doing the breed more of a disservice. So I think technology can really embrace and help judges try to be able to improve it. But you can't be afraid of using it. And you can't worry about what's the peanut gallery thinking if I go to check my breed standard while I'm judging the breed. Now, maybe in your country where you guys are, you know, getting improved for smaller numbers of breeds or whatever, that might be more of a fair comment to a degree. Okay. To a degree, when but you're in a think about it. Think about it. Just take the sporting group. Okay. So that's what I'm working on right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. got how many measurable breeds just in my most right. recent application? Quakers, right. Legatos, Labradors, Golden Retrievers. Every single one of them is a DQ for measurement. Right. And they're all kind of like they're 15 and a half to 18 and a half to 20. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you can memorize until the cows come home. But I will damn good and well go and double check. Is this one this and a half and that and a half or that and a half and this and a half, right? right to be right. sure that I've got my eye set for the right breed 
And if I've got a question, why wouldn't I go look? 100% for sure. Yeah. I'm a big proponent of that. And I commend you for that mindset and that approach. But, you know, it's my observation. I don't really see a lot of judges doing that. And honestly, we forgot more about breeding and showing in dogs than what we're going to be able to verbalize on any given moment. And, you know, I'll talk to people about, you know, trimming or whatever, and all of a sudden they'll say, oh, there's this new technique that they're doing. It's called blah, blah. I'm just like, are you crapping me? Like that was around like 30 years ago. Okay. (laughs) What? (laughs) It's not a fad, (laughs) you know, anyways, I digress. So I think that technology and embracing, you know, is fantastic. I do see a lot of judges, especially in the U S that are older, come with these big roller boards with all this, you know, paperwork and, and, and that's fine. That works for them. It doesn't work for me. I'm just like, give me a tap. That's my preference. So I respect that. Now, a few years ago, when I was starting to judge, there was an association that had me come to do a few of their shows, and they offer written critiques at the breed level. And it, Laura, it was a fantastic process. And real quickly, in a nutshell, what it was, was this, hey, three meets walk in, you take a look at them, you send them around, you send the number two, number three out, you examine the first one, you have it move around to your table, you go over to the table, you sit down, your breed standards there, the dog's there just free baiting, you know, sitting, whatever, and you're writing out a one-page critique form, which basically kind of says, here's the things that are really good on this dog, and here's things that need some improvement. Again, it's not the encyclopedia. It's a quick snapshot that's ideally capturing the characteristic of the breed that make this a really good in this example Malamute and here are some areas you know for improvement based on where you know faults etc are put in perspective on the breed standard you go through that with and then that dog leaves you do the second dog third dog bring all three back in by then you know who you're one two and three are you've just written a one page on each dog Mm -hmm. you place them accordingly you mark the book away you go they also get a copy of your critique when they leave the ring Yes. So now ABCA, is that what you did? Because I did yes, IABCA yes. show too. And love you know, I've had it. Love other, it, love it, love it. I've had other judges kind of poo-poo it, but honestly, for me, again, early, early in my judging, I did this show and it was so useful to me as a judge. I thought it was useful to it. the exhibitors because I, I was it. able to process the standard with the dog in front of me love, as I was writing it. their critique. And then they do the two judge best in show. So I'm in the best in show ring in this case with Linda Rydell. And yeah. I'm, Oh, I love Linda. I'm, she's super, yes. she's for her person. Yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, yeah. Friends. And we won't digress into the story of how she tried to get us lost going to dinner that night. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I could discuss the dogs in the ring. So I was able to meet with a much more senior judge and absorb that. It was just, I thought it was such a useful, useful tool and what a great learning process. One of, exactly. One of my ideas for years, and I've written about this, I've talked about this, for the American Kennel Club, we don't have fun matches anymore. Right. Why can we not embrace a concept that's similar to this, like they have in England, where they have, you know, the other shows that are non-championship shows, and so the judges learn, the people learn, maybe you get some kind of a certificate and it is a place for people to start because right now people are starting at IABCA or they're starting at UKC shows because they're safer and friendlier and they're learning stuff and it's less pressure and all of those things. If the American Kennel Club could create 
in this case, I'm talking AKC. I'm not entirely yeah, 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 AKC yeah, has yeah. or doesn't have like this. Yeah. But the idea of having a non-point show in which judges and exhibitors share knowledge in this type of format, I just think we would be swarmed with exhibitors. I'm going to challenge you. Why couldn't that happen on a regular show? I don't say that it couldn't. <laughs> Actually, no, I do say that it couldn't because the existing American Kennel Club show is set up with a two minutes per dog judging schedule. Okay. So what if there's a method of my madness here? Okay. <laughs> hey, this is good. This is good. So what if written critiques at the breed level were offered on Saturday for all toy dogs? What if it wasn't every dog in the show? What if all it required was AKC approval to modify the rate of judging because it's essentially half, it's about 12 dogs an hour as opposed to 20 to 25. And then why don't you staff that with permit judges, you know, et cetera, et cetera, who are wanting that type of in-depth knowledge to improve their skill set. And then think about this. And if that were offered, you know, four points, written critiques of the breed level, rate of judging is this, here's the schedule for all the toy dogs or terriers or whatever it is you want to do. And let's try this on as a trial to see if it has teeth. Let's see if it does bring exhibitors back to the all breed shows because it's an issue. Entries are down across the board, you know, yada, yada, yada. I remember back in the day, a thousand dogs at a U.S. show was a small show. Oh, it was tiny. You get a thousand exactly. dogs. That's like a large to above average. Well, and it's the same thing in Canada. I mean, our entries have declined. And then so when I first did the IABCA shows or IBECA or whatever it is shows, I put together a whole perspective for our professional association. We only have one in Canada, and I was on the executive at the time. And at the time, there just really wasn't a will for that to happen. But what I was approaching this at, Laura, was written critiques of the breed level for the entire day of an all-breed show. What's happened, you know, in our sport here is that in Canada – Shows have been complementing the regular all-breed shows with group limited shows. So you'll have a sporting limited entry only. So instead of across a three-day weekend, there's four sets of points for gun dogs. So I say to people I've talked to about this in the Canadian scene, why don't we offer it at your limited show? And why don't you get some permit judges to come in? What an amazing learning opportunity. And then just give them their own ring. And if 75 dogs would normally have taken them three hours to do, you let them have six hours. Or That's only if there's one judge, but you get it. Break it down into smaller amounts if you think, you know, you have a constraint to fit that into your scheduling at an AKC, you know, Aubrey show. I think there's ways that we can approach this to trial something like this to see if there's any benefit and if it's going to stick. And I think that it starts with the Albury clubs changing their thought process to say, let's try something like this. Let's give it a go. What are we going to lose? We're not going to lose anything here. Right. But I also think there's so much benefit in that, Laura, because what happens is that it creates a more well-rounded, knowledgeable newer judge 
who now, when Laura goes to Seoul to judge whatever, and she's not got, you know, five groups under her belt, she's knocking out of the park because the foundation she's getting in her home country has prepared her to have these really critical conversations by way of writing written critique. She's a rock star when it comes to that. All right, crew, thank you all for joining us. This has been part one of our episode. Watch this space. Part two will be coming up soon. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.